Let's pray together. Father, we have joined our voices with Christians around the world in singing the Alleluia and all amen to you alone, declaring that you alone are holy, Lord God Almighty. And our heart's cry is that we would have more of you, Jesus, because you indeed paid it all for our own sin. And at the same time, when we look out at the world today with all of its brokenness and ugliness and despair, we do see that sin has left a crimson stain. And we know that your death is sufficient and your resurrection promises us that you will return and one day set all things right. Nevertheless, Lord, we live between this day and that day, and so we cry out to you for more of your grace and mercy in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our community, and in this world. Specifically, Lord, our hearts are troubled and grieved over what's happening in Israel and the Middle East. We pray for peace. We pray for a return of the hostages and an end to the rockets falling, a laying down of arms and a turning of many hearts, Jewish hearts, Palestinian hearts, Muslim hearts, Arab hearts, all hearts to you to find grace and peace that you bring. We don't know how you will do it, but we trust that you can, and so we ask you to do so. And not only far away for reconciliation in the Middle East, but in our own lives, in our own hearts as well. For those that are suffering and sick among us, those that are hurting and grieving, Lord, be present with them. Bring your peace to them. And now, Lord, as we come to your word, clear away what might be in our way that we might hear from you. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, how many of you love history? Anybody? I find history fascinating. Some of you perhaps not as much, uh, but I love it, and I love to learn uh, historical tidbits, and so I want to begin with a little historical tidbit about St. Columba of Ireland, one of the 12 uh, apostles of Ireland. There's no such thing in the Bible, but that's one of the, it's how he's known, one of the patron saints, uh, before St. Patrick being the greatest. He's born in 521 A.D. He founded the monastic community on the island of Iona. This is an image from the Book of Kells. My wife and I were in Dublin uh, uh, last year and had a chance to visit the Trinity uh, College and their remarkable library saw a display of the Book of Kells, one of the most remarkable illuminated manuscripts of the Gospels that exists. While the, the great libraries of Rome and Alexandria were burning because of the barbarian invasions, invasions Christian monks in Iona and in the Celtic Isles were furiously copying and preserving much of... Uh, of the Bible, Scripture, and also great Christian books as well. So that's St. Columba, uh, in, in, illuminated there inside the book of Kells. Um, now, Iona, if you know anything about the island of Iona, massive history of Christian scholarship and Christian mission. Studying the Scriptures, copying the Scriptures, scra- translating the Scriptures into many languages, and launching out into missionary expeditions all over the British Isles and, of course, also in Europe. Columba was a scholar. He was remarkable for his day. He spoke numerous languages, and but, but before he was 25 years old, had, had already translated a dozen works or more into his own native Celtic, Gaelic, I should say. Um, now, he, uh, he, he was studied under a man named Finian. Finian was his sort of the abbot, although it wasn't yet a monastery. He studied under Finian. Finian was a scholar monk as well. Finian had traveled to Rome and received from the grandson of St. Jerome a copy of what we know as the Latin Vulgate, uh, the, uh, uh, the 
the Latin translation of, of the Bible, particularly uh, a precious book of Psalms in Latin. Columba was so excited to get a hold of this and translate it into Gaelic that he did not wait for Finian to give him permission. He took the sacred manuscript and began copying in secret. When Finian found out about this, he was incensed. You don't have permission. That book belongs to me. We have to follow the protocols of the monastery and the scriptorium and demanded it be returned. And Columba refused and said, I cannot uh, give it back until I finish my translation into Gaelic for, the good of, for God's glory and the good of the people. This, you know, you think about it, these are two men committed to the word of God and to Christian mission, fighting over who gets to copy the book of the Psalms. It, the tensions grew so much that they went to the king. They took their, their case uh, to the king, uh, the, the king uh, Dear, I can't pronounce it in Gaelic. Dear Matt, uh, Mac Surbale. Anyway, he famously said, To every calf, cow belongs its calf, to every book belongs its copy. And he said, You have to give it back. And again, Columbus still refused, believing that God had put this on his heart to translate the Psalms into Gaelic. You're not going to believe this, but this tension grew until both Finian and Columba rallied armed men to their cause, and it broke out into a battle. The Battle of Kul Diermen, which we, means the Battle of the Book. 3,000 men died in that battle. Isn't that, that's shocking and tragic. In the aftermath of that, when sanity finally returned, it was excommunication, execution, or exile for Columba. And the bishops and argued, and eventually was exiled to the island of Iona. So Iona, this, this, this island of Mission and translation and study of the scriptures, which we know it for, started because this guy was exiled there for leading an armed revolt about translating the Psalms. Why do I tell that story? Well, one, because it's interesting, and I like that sort of thing. <laughs> but also, because Christians throughout history, Christians who've been redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ, who love the word of God and are committed to his purposes, have done terrible things to each other in the name of Christian mission. It was true in 500 AD. It's true in 2023 AD. And it was true in the first century as well, about 50 AD when we come to the New Testament in our study of the book of James. If you've been tracking with us, you know that James has been hammering away at this thing we call faith works, meaning how does our faith in Christ, our commitment to him, work itself out into all of our daily lives? And some people like to say that what we really need is a return to the New Testament church, a return to the early church. Well, I think you're going to see, if you haven't seen already, from the passage we'll look at today, that I'm not so sure that's a good idea in its entirety. So let's look at James chapter 4. Verses 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and, and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. 
Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? As I said, some people think, let's go back to the New Testament church, the early church, because it was so pure and so good. If you've read carefully any of the epistles, James or Paul's epistles, letters to these churches, those people had some serious issues. Of course, we don't. We've arrived and we have no problems. But they had problems in the early church. (laughs) These Jewish Christian congregations that James is writing to were shot through with conflicts. He begins the section, by the way, this passage we've looked at, so James is not... This is not a new section. It's not a new theme he's introducing. In a sense, he's looking back at all that has come before in his letter and, and, and sort of stopping and pausing and saying, do you see the issues you're facing? Do you see the trouble within you? Are you willing to repent and turn back to God? We've looked at class conflicts between rich and poor in chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, showing favoritism to those who are wealthy and excluding the poor. We've looked at verbal conflicts, gossip, slander, and uncontrolled tongues in chapter 3. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambitions in the second half of chapter 3. And James puts this question to the church. Church is. By the way, he's writing to a group of churches. I think he puts it to us as well. Where is all this ugliness coming from? What's the root cause of all these quarrels? This section of the letter, James is pausing to say, let's talk about what's really going on in your hearts and in your midst. Back in chapter 1, James calls the Word of God a mirror. Do you remember this? The mirror, the the mirror, the perfect law of God, the law of liberty. If we look into it and forget what we look like, like, to to look at the law and not do what it says, is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and goes away and forgets what he looks like. In a sense, in this section, chapter 4, in the beginning, James is holding up the mirror to us and saying, do you see? Do you see? What's really going on in your midst? I think it's easier for us to go, do they see? That church, those people, they have such issues. We should pray for them. But I think James is speaking to us, to our hearts, mine and yours. He begins by addressing two kinds of conflict. The first is obvious. It's conflict with others. When you read James' letter, it makes you wonder, what's going on? He talks about murder. Is this metaphor? Is this hyperbole? What's he talking about in this text? Well, we don't know for certain. It may be that tensions had risen inside that church that James is writing to where there were fights, violence. I mean, we just heard about St. Columba. It's possible that these churches were exploding with violence over their conflicts. It may also be he's using metaphor and hyperbole to talk about the violence in their own hearts and with their words. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
fights and quarrels. It's military language actually here in Greek for conflicts and wars. It's a metaphor for some serious stuff, I think. He's echoing the words of his brother Jesus. Remember what Jesus talks about? You have heard it said, do not murder. We'll see this in from Matthew chapter 5 here, verses 21 through 22. You've heard that it said to those of the old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. Now, what's Jesus saying? In your heart, if you hate your brother or sister, if you despise them, if you curse them. Last week, I preached at, at Kessinger Campus about the, the, the taming of the tongue and uh, not, not cursing and blessing with the same tongue. And afterwards, when I walked out, my wife said to me very gently but directly, does that apply to the Bears players this afternoon, Pastor Jeff? <laughs> All kidding aside, if you despise someone, curse them. Even if you never say it or do anything, but in your heart, you have murdered them in your heart. In God's eyes, the seeds of of despising, anger, cursing, bitterness that would lead to physical violence are already there. That's Jesus' point, and that's James' point. He's less concerned with the specific details here and more interested in getting down to the root cause what is it? He says it. If you go back one slide for a minute. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? This is going to be foundational for us to understand and apply this passage. The problem, James says, and I have to return to this all the time, the problem is not out there. It's not with them. Ultimately speaking, the problem is Take your finger like this, point it at me. Everyone, point it at me. Now turn it and go like this. It's here. It's in you. This is not to say that we don't discern truth from error in the culture, that there aren't issues we should say this is wrong, what what they're espousing is not right. But ultimately speaking, what causes fights and quarrels in the family of God is not them. It's you. Your passion's at war within you. Skip ahead now to where we see the definitions of these words. The word, two, two words here is for passions and desires in this text. Passions is the word hedone. It uh, means pleasure, desire. It's where we get our English word, you might know it, hedonism. Where the pursuit of pleasure is the ultimate good, the ultimate goal of life. And the second word there, desires, epithemeo. Epi meaning over, thumeo meaning desire. So an over-desire in Greek. Meaning the point is a desire out of control, a desire that's controlling you, a desire that's gone wrong, it's consumed you. This is the essence of idolatry. We'll get to this later, but it's why he calls these people an adulterous people. So you've made idols out of your desires for pleasure. You want what you want, and you won't have it any other way, and that's become functionally your God, even though you sing the worship songs and show up and say the right things. That's what he's talking about here. The point is not that it's wrong to have desires. It's not even that it's wrong to want pleasure. God is the God. The Psalms are full of delight and joy and pleasure at God's right hand. The issue is when your desire for your pleasure and your gain and your good becomes your God. That's destructive in your heart and in the community of faith. Your inner life then is a battleground Desires at war, passions at war is what he's saying. 
I remember talking to a man years ago who was part of our church family loosely. His wife and kids were really involved, and he came occasionally because she sort of wanted him to. I hadn't seen him or her in a while. I ran into her in the community, and she said, yeah, he's, uh, he's moved out. And she was full of grief over it. And she asked me, would you, would, you, if, if, would you meet with him? Before he files for divorce, would you meet with him? Talk sense to him? I said, well, I'll be happy to meet with him, but he's got to want to do that. And there are no magic words that I'm not, people sometimes think the pastor's going to show up and sprinkle pastor dust and everything will be okay. It doesn't work that way. So I met with him over a cup of coffee. I could tell he was there because his wife said, please, please meet with Pastor Jeff before you file for divorce. He sat across the table from me and said this. You know, I haven't been happy for 20 years in this marriage. Doesn't God want us to be happy? Aren't I doing us a favor by ending this? With all the love of Jesus, I wanted to reach across the table and choke him. <laughs> not really. It's not about your happiness. Like The surest path to misery is to make your personal happiness the goal of your life. G.K. Chesterton once said the greatest cure for hedonism is to practice it. You realize how empty it is. This is what James is saying. Your issues in the church are really in your own hearts. But I want to say this. The Christian life is not a life of negation, but affirmation. It's not, sometimes people look at Christians like you just can't do a bunch of stuff. We go through life miserable, and maybe in heaven we'll have a party. God is not the God of negation and wants to keep us all down and rob you from pleasure. He's the God of joy and delight, but he knows that we look for it in the wrong places that will destroy our souls and our relationships. Christians ought to be the biggest pleasure seekers. We find our greatest joy and pleasure in God. Thomas Chalmers wrote a remarkable sermon with a terrible title. The title of the sermon is The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. <laughs> but it's brilliant. You can find it on the internet. You should read it. And I, maybe I should preach in cool collars with uh, whatever that is he's wearing there. <laughs> self versus self is at the root of all conflict. The best way to overcome the self and the world is not with morality or self-discipline. That's what our culture says. The best way to overcome this is not by trying harder. Discipline yourself. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, Christ. It's not just denying your desire for pleasure, it's fixing your desire for pleasure on the right object, on Jesus Christ. This is what he's getting at. The scriptures are filled with this. In fact, C.S. Lewis in his remarkable book, The Screwtape Letters, some of you may have read this or know about it. If you haven't, uh, let me just give you a little background. The Screwtape Letters are letters from one demon to another. Now, Lewis doesn't believe demons write letters. It's a metaphor. It's fiction. But it's, it's explaining something profound. Screwtape is writing uh, to his uh, nephew, Wormwood, who is in charge of messing up this uh, human's life. And he says to him this. By the way, when you hear the word enemy... It's referring to God because these are demons writing, remember. Never forget that when we're dealing with any pleasure in its healthy, normal, and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is corrupt and to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has designed in ways and at times and in degrees which he has forbidden for their good. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of the pleasures. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure, that's the formula. Did you hear that? 
an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing return. That's the formula. What, isn't that what James says? You want what you can't have. And you go after it and after it and after it, and you get angrier and more bitter and resentful and hostile because you're not receiving. Our problem is we try to make our personal desire for pleasure into God rather than letting God reshape our desires. Remember that Psalm 34, 7, or 37, 4? It's one of those. Where he says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Do you remember this verse? What does that mean? Delight yourself in the Lord, as if that's some sort of rubbing the genie lamp. I have desires, I have, I, have, I have what I want, and if I delight myself in the Lord, whatever that means, he'll give them to me. No, that's not what it means. Or does it mean I have some good desires and some bad desires, and so if I rub the lamp and delight myself in the Lord, he'll sort them out, give me what I, the good ones and take away the bad ones. That's a better interpretation, but I don't think quite accurate. I think delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart means this. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he becomes the desire of your heart. And what does he give you? More of himself. More of him. More delight. More joy in him. This is at the heart of what James is saying here. Which really points us to the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Who says, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. This brings us to the second point, conflict with God. James says, you have conflict with each other, which is really your inner roar within yourself and your own desires. And ultimately speaking, that has put you at odds with God, as God's people. Here we come really to, I think, to the heart of James's challenge to us and his plea for us. Our problem is not just with others. It's not even with ourselves only. It's with God. Look at verses 4 through 5. Embrace yourselves. You adulterous people. Actually, there's an exclamation point there. Let me read that again. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? You adulterous people. Whoa. Adulterous. Well, all throughout the Old Testament, the people of God, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, are compared to uh, the, in, when, they, when they wander from God and disobey his law, they're compared to an unfaithful spouse. And some of you know that in the New Testament, the church is called the what? Bride of Christ. James is exactly right to say when we choose the world. Now, the Bible is clear. There is so much in this world. A beautiful fall morning, the changing of the leaves, the sweetness of friendship and family, the joy of a reconciled relationship, a beautiful music which we heard this morning. There are many gifts of this world which God has given to us which we should delight in. We sing the hymn, This is My Father's World. Rocks and trees and however it goes, right? It's wonderful. Yet, at the same time, there is something to this world, the systems of this world, society and culture, where our personal desire for our personal gain, pleasure, and good becomes ultimate. That is counter to the will of God. And to pursue that is an act of infidelity to God. It's an act of unfaithfulness as God's people. We've been called and reconciled and redeemed and drawn to him. Then to decide we're going to follow the world makes no sense. It's cheating on your spouse, James says. He uses this phrase, 
intentionally, provocatively. Okay, but you might say, okay, okay, I get that, but an enemy of God? I'm not an enemy of God, I love God. Well, yes, because we're chasing after those things which are contrary to the heart of God. Let me put it to you this way. Think back of, of, of your spiritual life over the last 12 months. Are you more a friend of God or a friend of the world? Are you more in love with God or more consumed by the cares and passions of the world? Are you more in line with the will of God or more in line with the trajectory of this world? You can't have both. I think that's the great myth of the church in America today, is that I can sort of somehow ride the middle, drive on the center line. James makes it clear. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. There is no middle ground. Verse 5, there's some technical oddities in verse 5. Uh, we talked about this at length in our preaching team meeting on Thursday mornings, wrestling through this, because for one thing, he says, do you suppose the Scripture says without, re- without purpose or without reason? There's no Old Testament reference that has anything like the exact construction of what James says here. Often when you read, as the Scripture says, you'll find in the footnotes of your Bible uh, a, a direct quotation from the Old Testament. There is none, because we're, there, he is not quoting any specific passage. Most scholars think he's paraphrasing the idea of God's jealousy. Jealousy in English makes us think I'm jealous of. God is not jealous of anything. He's jealous for things. He's jealous for you to belong to him. He's not jealous of you. He's jealous for you, meaning he deeply yearns and longs for you to be committed to him, to find your delight and joy and pleasure and purpose in him. And it grieves him when you don't. That's what James is getting at. And the, word, the reference to the Spirit there is the Holy Spirit. So what, in paraphrase, James's point is this. God sees us when we pursue friendship with the world. He knows. And it grieves his heart. His spousal heart. And he does not reject or turn his back. He yearns and longs and is jealous for you to return to him. So I think this is important to pause for a minute and say, if you've turned away from God, or someone you know has, they've made a profession of faith, they're, they're a believing Christian, but the evidence of their life is they're more friends with the world these days. God, God my temptation is to, you know, I, tr- I pl- pray and I plead and I try, but at some, a certain point I'm like, well, you know, they made their choice. But James is saying God's heart Even while his mercy might be harsh at times, his heart is not writing you off, not turning his back, but deep longing for you to return. And sometimes for someone to return, it takes finding out that this world has nothing. But that's his heart. If you are a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit within you, then that spirit, James says, is working nudging, drawing, urging you to return. The guilt, the angst that you feel in the quietness of your heart. I have a good friend who who has, this describes him. He has turned his back and walked away, but I know what's in his heart. And every time we talk, there's there's an edge and an anger. And where that's coming from is I think the Spirit is working on him, and he doesn't want to hear it. So it manifests in... I remember being at Target one time and seeing this guy who hadn't been in church in like forever and he sees me and I see him and I see that he sees me and he sees that I see that he sees me, right? 
It's one of those, he looks down and he goes about his like, business and I, and I, thought, I remember going away thinking, how tragic. So I walked up to him and, and, and made small talk and it was awkward and I went about my business. He viewed me as like, oh, this reminder. No, God longs for him to return. To the holding grudges. This brings us to the final point, an experience of grace. James says, your conflict with others is really a, a war within yourself and it's actually enmity with God. And it brings us to the solution, the experience of grace. Th- friends, this is the best part. This is the best part of the portion we're reading this morning. Despite all our conflict with others, our selfish ambition, our desires, our unfaithfulness, he is unchanging in his love for us. The great self-revelation of God in Exodus chapter 34, the Lord, the Lord, abounding in steadfast love. Right? Slow to anger. Overflowing in love and grace. This is who God is. Let's look at verses 6 through 10. But he gives more grace. By the way, if you like to underline, highlight, star, you should circle that, underline that, star that, highlight those, those first five words. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I just love those first few words, but he gives more grace. If you hear nothing else this morning, I hope you walk out with that resounding in your heart. He gives more grace. Not saving grace. If you're a Christian, you have that. The moment you trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, his saving grace through his shed blood on the cross and the power of his resurrection flows into your life and you're forgiven and free, past, present, and future, done. Your past is redeemed, your present makes sense, your future is secure. Not saving grace. What kind of grace? The grace every one of us needs to live faithfully in a broken world, a world full of conflict and strife and enmity. I need that grace, don't you? Saving grace saves me and forgives my sin and restores me, but I just need God's grace every day. And he gives more and more and more of it. God's gracious supply. St. Augustine said, what God demands, God gives. John 1, chapter 1, verse 16, from his fullness, we all have received grace upon grace. So whatever your situation or struggle, he gives more Grace. God's grace is sufficient. This is what the Apostle Paul says. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Some of you will know this story. Paul has a thorn in his flesh, and we don't know what it was, an ailment, an affliction, something that troubled him deeply, and he begged and pleaded with God to take it away, and God's response was, anybody remember? My grace is sufficient for you. It's enough. My grace is enough. And by the way, Paul, there's more of it, should you only ask. There's only one condition for this grace. Maybe you're thinking, whoa, 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 time out. Isn't grace the free gift of God? Isn't it the God's unmerited favor? How can there be a condition? It's not a condition by which you earn or deserve God's grace. It's the only condition on which you receive that free gift of grace that God wants to give. In a word, humility. It is humility. In verse 6, God gives more grace. In the last part of that verse, He opposes the proud, but gives grace to who? The humble. The humble. 
This language that follows then in 7 through 9 is repentance language. Go back to that slide, one slide, sorry. Yeah, repentance language. He, he uses the language like resist the devil, resist the devil, draw near to God. He uses these sort of couplets of words. Cleanse and purify your hands and hearts. Mourn over your own sin. Humble yourselves. Humility is interesting, though. Humility is the one virtue that you don't get by focusing on it, right? I've been working on my humility, and I'm really making progress. Perhaps you've noticed. You haven't? Well, let me tell you about how humble I've become, right? It doesn't work that way. Like, humility is not something, it's a byproduct of not focusing on yourself. Sometimes C.S. Lewis is wrongly quoted as saying, humility is not thinking, of yourself, thinking more, less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. He didn't actually say that. What he said is actually better, and here it is. <laughs> Do not imagine that if you meet any, a really humble man, he'll be what most people call humble. Nowadays, he will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person <laughs> who's always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. He'll not be thinking about humility. He'll not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. If you're sitting here thinking, this is not my issue, but I know somebody who it applies to, this is your issue. Every one of us has a proud heart which is at the heart of what James is saying to us. And the only condition on which we receive the free gift of more grace and more grace is recognizing our need, mourning over our sin, submitting ourselves to God. Now we go to the last, once more, James 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace. So, if you find that you're, if you are regularly giving in to the same besetting sin. He gives more grace. If you struggle to forgive somebody who's wounded you deeply, maybe it's decades ago, but you just can't let it go and you're full of bitterness, he gives more grace. If you're a victim of an imploding self-centeredness that sort of sucks you in, you need to control, he gives more grace. If, you, if you're prideful and stubborn, you've never lost an argument or admitted so, but you want to change, he gives more grace. If you struggle to keep your tongue in check and your words have wounded others and you deeply regret it, he gives more grace. If you're facing insurmountable circumstances, a terrible diagnosis, a terminal illness, the loss of someone you love, a shattering divorce, bitter ashes of some personal failure, he gives more grace. Isn't that good news? Isn't that great? Isn't this good news that James says, you adulterous people, you slanderers, you quarrel and you fight, you have serious problems. But God loves you. He's not done with you. And he gives more grace. What a perfect lead-in as we come to the table, which is the table at which we remember all we have is a gift of God's grace. We're invited to it by and through his grace. Let me pray. We'll worship and then come to the table in a few minutes. Father in heaven, we pause and acknowledge that you are the giver of all good gifts and all grace belongs to you. And you have given us your saving grace through your shed blood on the cross and for us who struggle with friendship with the world, we, we struggle to get our desires ordered right. You give us more grace. And we praise you for that, how we need that. And thank you. Lord, give us grace now as we prepare 
in worship to come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen. The night that Jesus was betrayed, the scripture tells us that he was eating with his disciples. And he took bread and broke it and passed it to them. It has been passed to you now. And he said to them, and he says to us, this is my body. It is given for you. Eat this in his memory. Scripture tells us that after they'd eaten together, Jesus poured out a cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And that every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are proclaiming his death and his resurrection until he returns. Let's do that together. Amen. And now may you receive the benediction today. May the God who gives more grace be with you and with all of God's people until he returns. Amen.